With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. This is the Hockey News Podcast. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Hockey News Podcast. It's Matt Larkin here. I've emerged from the jungle with my Tarzan haircut uh, back after moving last week. And I'm with Ken Campbell, Ryan Kennedy, my fellow senior writers. A lot to talk about this week. We're going to dive right into it. Let's start with the big coaching hiring news of the week. All due respect to Brad Larson, it's Gerard Gallant. That's the big hire of the week in New York. The Rangers bringing in a hired hand, someone with a lot of experience, some good recent success to try and change the team culture. So let's start there, fellas. I want to hear your thoughts on this hiring. Do you think it's going to solve the problems in New York? We'll start with you, Mr. Ken. Well, um, I I think it it can. Um, You know, I think if there was a a criticism of David Quinn, it was that he was maybe a bit of a micromanager and maybe overcoached a little bit. And and I don't think you're going to get that from Gerard Gallant. Um, You know, you're going to get a guy who is going to have a good rapport with the players. And, and, you know, I mean, the players will know where they stand. You know, there's no, there, there won't be any gamesmanship. There won't be any hidden messages. I think with Gerard Gallant, you know, you know exactly where you stand. Um, you know, he's, he's by and large a player's coach and a, and a guy who's an encouraging, positive guy, but also a guy that will, you know, that will, I think, tell you what you have to do to be better or tell you when you're not playing well. Um, so, I mean, there won't be any mixed messages. I think the players will enjoy playing for him. I think that the key for Gerard Gallant will be to get, to get an assistant that is, you know, super, super strong on fundamentals, X's and O's, you know, that, that kind of thing, uh, because that's not his thing, right? Like Gallant, I mean, that's not his thing. He's more of a, he's more of a player's coach, a motivator, a, you know, a, a leader of men kind of thing. I don't think he gets too wrapped up in the tactics of the game. And I think that's where he'll have to find someone, you know, I mean, he's had Mike Kelly forever. So maybe he, maybe Mike Kelly comes with him, or he finds someone who's got a really, really strong background and fundamentals. Um, but, but I think, you know, I mean, these guys are going to want to play for him, so. Yeah, and I think you make a very good point there, Ken, about uh, Mike Kelly being sort of his right-hand man. And, you know, I've, had, I've actually had the chance to see Mike Kelly uh, speak at coaching seminars um, based on his time in Vegas. And, you know, those early Golden Knights teams were so good at being on the right side of the puck particularly the forwards, the way, you know, if you think about that Marcia So, Riley Smith, William Carlson line, you know, those were players that really found their place in Vegas because of a system that they could adhere to and thrive in. And, you know, if you look at this New York Rangers team, there's so much young talent and those are players that are just beginning their careers. If you can teach them how to be, those great two-way players, 
I mean, that's just going to mean the world for New York because, you know, you've got guys like Lafreniere and Capococco and Vitaly Kravtsov, um, you know, so many good young forwards where we know that they've been able to score at, you know, the junior levels, the, the lower levels. But if you can turn them into fantastic two-way NHLers, then you are so far ahead of the game because, you know, you have different make, difference makers in that lineup already with Panarin and Zabanajad, and you've got, you know, a, a pretty intriguing decor uh, led by Truba. And then of course you have Keandre Miller, uh, a rising two-way star there. So I, I think that Gallant, um, he's a, he's a good fit because he's a respected name. And as you mentioned, Ken, he's, you know, he's a player's guy. He can, he can really sort of identify with these players, but also if he brings in that structure and system uh, via Mike Kelly, for example, that, that was so successful in Vegas, then you've definitely got the parts to make noise in New York. For sure. And I think it'll be particularly interesting to see what his effect is on the forward group. Because like you said, Ryan, there's a lot of skill, you know, between Zabanaja and Fox and Strom and you have Kapo Kaku who's going to keep getting better, Lafreniere and so on. Even on defense, Adam Fox, you have a lot of talent back there. And in the forward group, compared to the D group. So on the D group, you have the type of guys, I think, that, are, that play Gerard Gallant hockey already and Keandre Miller and Ryan Lindgren and Jacob Truba. Those guys, you don't need to drag them into the fight. That's already part of their game. But at forward, aside from Chris Kreider, I think you're going to see more of an impact there from Gallan. You know, maybe you're going to see someone like Vitaly Kravtsov, who's got a reputation, a good reputation in the organization for being a feisty player. He'll be unlocked, I think, under Gerard Gallant. What I'm really wondering is... Will, will Chris Jury have to add more pieces to the puzzle to give Gallant what he needs to play that style? So do the Rangers go out and try and sign someone like Blake Coleman or Nick Foligno or both? I think those are the types of players that I think will fit better into a Gallant system because it's a matter of can you get a guy like Panarin to play that style? Do you want a Panarin to play that style? I don't know if you do. I think it's more about just finding the complementary pieces and then matching them to the coach. It's interesting too with Gallant, you know, we know he has a reputation of being a pretty quick turnaround artist. He got good results quickly in Florida, obviously good results really quickly, quickly in Vegas, but he's also a pretty short shelf life guy as a coach. And I know the reputation is that he has a, a generally a somewhat prickly relationship with management over time. He's a player's coach, but also a guy who defends his players. And sometimes I think he almost puts himself between the players and management. So It'll be very interesting over time to see how that relationship works between him and Chris Drury. Uh, so it was interesting, you know, hearing the comments from Nathan McKinnon last week. Gallant's former team, the Vegas Golden Knights, knock the Colorado Avalanche out of the playoffs after the Avs looked unstoppable. They looked like a video game on easy mode, and they dropped four straight. You have Nathan McKinnon just dumping on himself, for lack of a better word, uh, in his post season presser saying that he hasn't won a thing so i'm curious for you guys you know when you see a team like this that looks so dominant so impressive and suddenly just loses it um, but loses it to a great vegas team do you change anything if you're joe sackick what are you looking to do this offseason ryan well i don't panic if i'm joe sackick because this is a really good abs team that's still on the upswing and you know you look at that series with vegas and to me the details were what led the Golden Knights to victory. You know, Vegas just looked like a smarter team. Colorado was, they're, they're more fun to watch because they were constantly attacking. They're so fast. They're so big. They're so skilled. 
but they got they got caught up in the details of the game. There was you know just crucial turnovers, and you know Vegas took advantage. So you know when I see young players that you know maybe need just a they they just needed that test, and I think now they go into the off season, they're mad. Um, I think that's a great thing. I mean, we always knew Nathan McKinnon was a, a fierce competitor. You look at guys like Landis Gog, obviously he's a fierce competitor as well. I, I, I think you chalk this up to only one team can win every year. We didn't get it done this year. Let's hunker down and let's, let's get smarter out there. Let's grow as a team. You know, we, we still have these great young players on the rise, whether it's Kale McCarr or Alex Newhook. I think Tyson Jost had a nice playoff, uh, particularly in the absence of Nazem Kadri. You know, the one thing Joe Sackick does need to do is re-sign guys. And he does have some big decisions because Philip Grubauer – uh, is an unrestricted free agent this summer. And he does have a Vezina Trophy. No, uh, you know, he's a finalist. I was going to say nomination. He's a finalist. Um, so there, there's no more voting to be done. It's already done. Landis Gog's a UFA. Brandon Sod is a UFA. Can you keep all those guys uh, under the salary cap? I don't know if you can do it. So you have to figure out who you're going to keep, who's going to replace the guys that you may or may not lose. So to me, you don't panic, but you do have work to do internally. And then I guess, you know, you do have to consider, you know, what do you do with Nazem Kadri, uh, a player who once again, you know, let his team down in the playoffs. Yeah, Ryan, I, I think you're bang on about the detail, the details and, and the, the tactics in the series. I think that was where the series was won and lost. I think, you know, I mean, to me, the Colorado Avalanche in the last four games of that series, it was shocking how little attention to detail they, they had and, and how many defensive, like super big defensive mistakes they made in their own end. Like I, I was, I found it mind boggling, to be honest with you. So what does that tell you? What does that tell you? You lost the series. You were probably the better team. Coming into the series, you were hotter. You had you had won four straight. You won the first two games of the series. Probably shouldn't have won the second game of the series, but did. Um, so what does that tell us? I, I think it tells us that there's a fundamental flaw somewhere in this organization. Is, is it with Coach Jared Bednar? Um, I, I don't know for sure whether it is, but I, I can tell you one of two things has to happen there. He either has to convince them to start playing a certain way, or they got to find someone who's going to do it. Like it's one of those two things, you know, and, and if, if, if you come to the conclusion in the off season that Jared Bednar, yeah, he can indeed be that guy. He can indeed be that guy that gets them to, to, you know, to, to play that way and to play a more disciplined and, and, you know, less sort of risky type of uh, system, then, okay, you stay with him and, and, and you give him another chance. But if you come to the conclusion that maybe he can't, then I think you've got to look at, who you put behind the bench. And I would suspect, and I don't know again, but I would suspect that the Jared Bednar is going to be on a pretty short leash next year when it comes to that. Hmm, interesting. I don't think I'm, I'm as pessimistic or worried as you guys are. 
Um, obviously, the result relative to the regular season dominance was disappointing because they were the best team offensively and defensively in the regular season. I think with those defensive gaps, look at the types of defensive players they have, You know, whether it's Sam Girard or Kale McCart, their style of defense plays great in the regular season because they're the modern incarnation of what it takes to be a two-way defenseman. In the playoffs, when you can get away with a lot more physically, I don't think maybe it translates as well. So you do have to wonder if Joe Sackick, you know, does he have to consider – going after some players in free agency that have Stanley cup experience, deeper playoff experience, maybe, but if you look at the core of this group, you know, Nathan McKinnon's 25, Mika Ranton is 24, Kale McCarr is 22, Samuel George 23, Newhook is 20, Bowen Byram's 20. I think that this group is still very young. And especially if you look at, you know, so like you said, Ryan, it's possible you're going to lose. I think you are going to lose Brandon Saad if you want to bring back Landis Cog, re-sign Kale McCarr, and if you want to bring back Grubauer. So if you're going to lose someone like Saad, you're going to need someone to step, step up in the forward group. And I think Newhook is someone, a great example of, of improvement from within. I think you're going to see it. You're going to need to see it from Bowen Byron as well, because if you look at the expansion draft scenario, if, if Colorado is going to do a 7-3-1 protection scheme, which is what I think is expected of them, even if Eric Johnson waives his no movement clause, you've got Kale McCarr, Devon Taves, Samuel Gerard, Ryan Graves. Pretty good chance that Ryan Graves is the guy you lose to the Kraken, and you're going to need someone else to step up on that blue line. I think Bowen Ryan, I know he doesn't, or I know he's, he's very young still, but I think what he can bring long-term might be the piece you're looking for. The guy who's got more size can play more of an all-around game. So I'm not as worried as Nathan McKinnon is. I, I think that the improvements from within, because Colorado has a fantastic farm system. I think that's going to help this team. At the same time, uh, I think you're right, Ryan, to touch on all the work that lies ahead for Joe Sackett, because, you know, you have to wonder, has Phil Grubauer priced himself out of Colorado? Because he had such a good season, and he's at best the number three priority of players they have to resign. And Colorado's cap space, it's like under $20 million. It's not like they're swimming in cap space. So it's tough. Like, do you have to make some tough decisions? Do you consider letting Grubauer go, signing a cheaper option, and you know, using the leftover money to pursue a higher impact player to play in the top six, like a Ryan Nugent Hopkins, someone like that, a Taylor Hall, if he doesn't go back to Boston? I'm not sure, but I do think this is the first offseason in which there is actual pressure on Joe Sackett. For a long time, it's sort of been the house money thing. And it, it, it kind of reminds me of what we saw with Kyle Dubas a couple of years ago. It was, you know, oh, it's still early. This is a young group. I think this is the year that honeymoon ends. And if Colorado doesn't go further next year, then you have to get pretty worried. But it's possible. I mean, if Vegas wins the cup, maybe Colorado was the second best team in the NHL and they just lost to the first. Mm -hmm. So I'm not panicking yet over those ads. Next up, gentlemen, uh, let's talk a little bit of Dougie Hamilton. So it's very interesting because we have Seth Jones, who has told Columbus as a couple of weeks ago that he doesn't want to resign. He's probably going to get traded. Now we have Doug Dougie Hamilton, who's also, uh, he's a UFA. Jones is the year after, but Dougie Hamilton also could be available. He has not worked out a deal with the Carolina Hurricanes. They're making him available for an early negotiation, possible sign and trade. What The reason why I'm bringing up Seth Jones is interesting because I feel like the market for Seth Jones is going to be very similar to the market for Dougie Hamilton, very similar to what they bring to the table, right shot, except that, of course, Dougie Hamilton, you don't have to pay as much. Usually in a sign, sign and trade, it's just you, you kind of pay peanuts just to get the right to get in the room and talk to the player. So you're only spending money, essentially, for Dougie Hamilton versus having to surrender an asset to get Seth Jones. Uh, so we'll start with you, Ryan. I, I just want to hear what you think in terms of potential landing spots for Hamilton, other than Carolina. It's still entirely possible he goes back or ends up working out a deal. But other than them, who do you see as a good suitor for Mr. Hamilton? 
Well, you know, a, a couple of teams come to mind, and I think it, it is, you know, important to establish that, you know, Carolina is still a great fit for Dougie Hamilton based on where he is in his career and where the Hurricanes are in their Stanley Cup window, which is, you know, I would say now. Um, the two teams that come to mind to me first is one we've spoken about already, which is the New York Rangers. Um, you know, they have the cap space. It's surprising, like a team that has Panarin, um, you know, you would think that that would be sort of like their sort of bank busting guy, but they actually have a lot of cap space, um, especially because, you know, they have so many players on entry level deals or, you know, RFA deals. So, you know, the Rangers could do it. And if you look at that team right now, yes, they do have Adam Fox and they have Truba and Miller and, and Lindgren, but, you know, a right shot Dougie Hamilton that can, you know, play that puck possession game, can be on your power play, uh, can log minutes. I mean, it's real hard to turn that down if you're trying to make, you know, a playoff run in a division that it's still going to be pretty tough when you go back to the old Metropolitan uh, cohort next season. You know, it's, it's no guarantee that New York's going to be a playoff team, but I, they're certainly in the mix and they could do damage with, with Dougie in the lineup. So I think that's a very intriguing possibility. The other one, and this is more of a fit. I'm not sure how realistic it is, but man, the Winnipeg Jets could really use Dougie Hamilton. You know, again, a right shot guy who can be top pairing can play, you know, 24, 25 minutes a game. I look at that Winnipeg lineup right now and, you know, say they lose, Paul Stastny to unrestricted free agency. That's six, six and a half million dollars, you know, off your cap hit right off the top. Um, I thought Josh Morrissey was really good in the playoffs and established himself as one of those top end guys. Um, you know, Dylan DeMello getting hurt, I, I think really hurt the Jets. But if you can get Hamilton in there, all of a sudden everything below him really falls into place and you can distribute minutes a little more easier. You can work in guys like Vili Hainala and Dylan Sandberg and Sammy Niku. And again, you've got the forwards, you've got the great goaltender with Dougie Hamilton. I think the Winnipeg Jets could really make noise. Now the big question is, would Dougie Hamilton want to go to a cold Canadian market. Um, you know, it, it, Winnipeg has not been a bastion of free agency lately. But on the other hand, if I'm being glass half full here, of all the Canadian markets, Winnipeg is probably the most rational when it comes to the fan base and the local media. So, you know, for free agents, as long as they're okay with, you know, putting on the park in November it seems like it's kind of the best place in Canada to play. If you don't want to be inundated with, you know, a harsh spotlight day in and day out. Yeah. Like one of the first teams that I came up with was the Winnipeg Jets as well. Um, but I, I, I'm just, I'm, I'm just going to go on the assumption that he's not going there. Like I'm, I'm just going to go on the assumption that no premier unrestricted free agent with all kinds of choice is ever going to choose the Winnipeg Jets. I'm sorry, Winnipeg, but I think even you guys realize that. And it's not, well, yeah, it's fair. I mean, guy can choose wherever he wants to go, right? It's fair, but it's, you know, I, I mean, I, 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 I think Winnipeg would be a great fit for him, but I, I just, I cannot see any 
sought after, highly coveted, you know, primo unrestricted free agent going to Winnipeg. So I, I kind of took them off the table pretty early. And the, the one that comes to mind for me is Philadelphia. Uh, I think that's a, that's a, that's a really good destination for him. Um, you know, to me, it just seems like, and I, I, Philly worries me a little bit just because it seems like they're always trying to come up with something that's going to save them and make them a Stanley cup contender. And they try something different every year and it never works. So I don't know if this would either, but I, I, I sure think that it would, he would be the kind of player that would be, you know, I mean, Ivan Provorov obviously is, is really, really good, but I think Dougie Hamilton could be like the guy, right. The, 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 the guy that, that sort of comes in and says, okay, look guys, we're just going to calm down here a little bit, you know? And, uh, and, and I, I, I just think that he could be a real sort of calming influence in, in, in front of uh, a goalie that I think really needs to have his confidence bolstered in the next couple of years um, and really needs to start to maybe see, you know, some chances that he has, you know, like, sort of less high danger stuff and, and, and that. And I think, I think Dougie Hamilton would be that kind of guy. So for me, it would probably be Philadelphia, but I also think that where he is would be great. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, and, and I, I can't help but think that maybe Carolina is just saying, okay, go out, find yourself the best offer you can find on a sign and trade. And then Carolina could say, well, if they're going to give you that, we'll give you that too. You know, maybe they're just gauging the market and seeing what, somebody's willing to pay for him and then they just come to Dougie and they say, well, oh, you got, uh, you know, seven times whatever. Well, we'll give you that. Right. And it's a good point about Carolina just because they are right in their Stanley Cup window. So they really can't afford to lose someone of Hamilton's caliber. If they if they end up having to trade him, they really got to make sure that they replace him with someone viable. Um, which is funny. I, I, I mean, I wrote about it yesterday on our website and, and a couple hockey trade options I had. One was the Columbus Blue Jackets. If you wanted to do something where you get Seth Jones coming in to occupy the Dougie Hamilton spot, it could make sense actually as a hockey trade. Same with New Jersey. The Devils have so much cap space, almost 40 friggin' million dollars in cap space. So what you could do is, you know, you, he does a sign and trade, Dougie Hamilton goes to New Jersey, and then maybe New Jersey says, hey, we can afford it. We'll, eat, we'll also eat four and a half million of PK Subban's salary, you can take him back as a four and a half million, you know, pending UFA guy for one year in the Dougie Hamilton spot on the Hurricanes. I don't know if that would work, but it could be intriguing, but they're not my number one pick. Uh, I had, I had a top three, you guys named two of my top three. My number one pick is the Chicago Blackhawks. They are for the first time in so long in a position to spend some money because all of these big contracts are starting to age out or disappear. We have Brent Seabrook doing the old, retired but not really retired so the LTIR is going to eat almost seven six point eight seven five million to be exact is going to come off the books and that's a really nice chunk of change I think the Blackhawks I mentioned I think earlier this season because at the start of the season I spoke with Stan Bowman and he talked about the idea that he really had to sell the core remaining core guys on the idea that the rebuild wasn't starting it was in progress this season was so bizarre with all the injuries, you know, Kirby Doc at the start of the season and Jonathan Taves, it was a total write-off, so you lose a year. You lose another year of good Patrick Kane. But there's still a bit of urgency, I think, in Chicago to make sure you get one more run while Patrick Kane has a lot left in the tank. And bringing in Dougie Hamilton would really accelerate that. And I mentioned Chicago as a potential suitor for Seth Jones. The problem with Seth Jones, it's a true trade. He's got one year left on his deal, so you'd have to surrender someone like an Adam Boakvist, for example, or Nicholas Bourdain in that trade. Whereas with Carolina, maybe it's just a pick. 
for the right to negotiate with Hamilton. Blackhawks have the cap space that they haven't had in recent seasons, and you can just sign Dougie to a long-term deal. So I think the Hawks are a big-time team to watch for Dougie. Next up, let's talk a little bit of Tuka Rask. So the Boston Bruins, they bow out of the playoffs. We find out that Tuka Rask needs hip surgery, and he's going to be out until January or February of 2022, which is an interesting wrinkle, of course, because the Bruins have that sort of three-headed monster net. You knew that either Rask or Yaroslav Halak, both UFAs, one of them is going to be pushed out because Jeremy Swayman emerged was so good for Boston down the stretch. So with this injury, what I want to know from you guys is, what do you think it means in terms of Rask's potential for staying in Boston? Should they re-sign him coming off this injury or should they move on? So we'll start with uh, Ryan. Give me your thoughts on this. I actually think that Boston should re-sign Rask. Uh, I don't know how long-term you go. Maybe it's just a one- or two-year contract at this point. But I think you just kind of roll with it. I think what you do is you pencil in Swayman as your opening night starter and your starter for sort of the, you know, the first couple of months of the season. You get, you know, a Curtis McElhinney, Michael Hutchinson kind of like waiver backup goalie, um, you know, like a veteran who can give you some games here and there if necessary, or if, you know, if things go pear-shaped for Swayman early on, then you pop in a guy who can just play a couple of games until Swayman sort of gets his head right. You also have Dan Vladish uh, in your system as well, who is a, a pretty good young goaltender. So he would be an option to bring up if you had to, but I think you just roll with it. And then, you know, when Rask returns, you hope that the best case scenario is that Swayman really seizes the crease full time. And now Rask is your one B, you know, quote unquote backup who just happens to have a wealth of playoff experience and, uh, and, and can be that mentor for Swayman because I, you know, at this point in Rask's career, especially with hip surgery, I mean, he's probably not going to play too much longer in the NHL, but he can give you a bit of value and again, you know, it feels like the Bruins window is closing really quickly. And if you've got one more run, maybe what you do is you have that Swayman Rask battery where, again, you know, if Swayman scuffles early on in the postseason, you pop in Rask, maybe he gives you, you know, like a Marc-Andre Fleury-esque run um, where, you know, you, you go a couple of series and, and you, you sort of hope for the best, but to me, that's the most sort of clean version of this where you get the, you know, you get the cap relief while Rask is injured. So you got some flexibility there for your roster. You can figure things out, but you're setting Swayman up for future success. And you're also not really blocking him by going out in the market and getting somebody, you know, like, like a Frederick Anderson or a Peter Morazic or somebody who, you know, wants starts right now, but probably isn't your long-term guy. So to me, that's the cleanest option right there. Yeah, I always look at stuff like this and, you know, you, th you think, okay, well, you know, should they move on from, uh, wow, simultaneous drink there on you two guys? Um, <laughs> you, you always think, you know, yeah, they should probably move on from Tuka Rask. They should go with Jeremy Swam and they, you know, those, those are like, I like to call those like hockey pool, ho hockey, fantasy hockey moves. You know what I mean? Like they right. sound good and it's like, yeah, of course you'd do that. Yeah, for sure. Why wouldn't you do that? But then reality hits you and Jeremy Swayman comes back next year and you know we don't know what they have in him I mean we think he's going to be pretty good but 
he may really falter next season or something, and then you're in a pickle, right? So I, I think, you know, I think what you do with Tuka Rask is you take advantage of the fact that he's basically said he wants to stay in Boston and that's it, or he doesn't, or he doesn't want to play. I mean, I, I mean, a lot of that can change. Those things can change very, very quickly. Um, but I think, you, you know, you go to Tuka Rask and you say, look, look, bud, um, you know, we've got our culture here. So you're taking a home downtown discount for sure. You know, without that, that even goes without saying, but you know, we're not going to have you for the first two thirds of the season. So, you know, here's what we're going to give you and you're going to rehab and practice with us and play with us and, you know, travel with us and mentor these guys. And then, and then you can come in in February. And if you prove your medal, you can play in the playoffs and we're good to go. Um, I, I think the Bruins should bring them back, but I also think it shouldn't be anything crazy. They should take advantage of this advantage of this situation they have with a guy who wants to stay in a culture that they have and, and uh, you know, do it that way. Yeah, I agree, Kenny. I'm going to push the take even further and say, this is actually fantastic news. Dare I say fantastic news for the Boston Bruins, because you already had leverage on Rask because he already said on the record that he only wants to play in Boston. So you knew he was going to take a hometown discount already have the culture of players taking less and now, because of the injury, that decreases his value even more. So now I'm wondering, it's like, could you get Rask to come back for one year and $4 million, whatever it is? And then he comes back. What do you do with that cap hit? You throw it on LTIR, which frees up the money to re-sign Taylor Hall, to re-sign David Krejci. Maybe you can re-sign Mike Riley. And I definitely agree with the notion that you bring in some veterans top cap just in case, maybe a buy low. So you bring in like a James Reimer. Or maybe Freddie Anderson, someone who's not going to cost that much their experience, but they're not coming off a banner season and they can sort of be the partner for Swayman if, if things do go pear-shaped because the sample size was small this year. And then when Rask is healthy, he comes back. And for Rask, there's motivation to take less money too because it's like, well, this way you can go out and get a better guy, I guess. Although the way LTIR works, I guess if he signs for more money, that's a bigger chunk that you can spend over the cap. Right. So, so that's a conspiracy theory. Are you better off actually spending a higher AAV on Rask because that way you can actually stash that amount? You can stash it more, yeah. Yeah, yeah so. ten million dollars. Yeah, exactly. I don't know how that would work, but it's something to consider. Uh, although he would have to come back in the regular season, unless you did the Kucherov yeah. and Rask's parachutes in from the rafters for Game One of the playoffs, <laughs> lands in the crease. Yeah, uh, but yeah, I, I think overall it's good news for the Bruins. Um, so the Winnipeg Jets they pull off a sweep in Round One of the Edmonton Oilers then they get quickly just dusted by the Montreal Canadians. And I think, I feel like we have this discussion every year, but I think it's, <laughs> we do. It's because we do. <laughs> Paul Maurice discussion. It's seven seasons now as a head coach. Uh, that's three series wins. If you're counting total in seven seasons. So is it time to finally move on from Paul Maurice? Or do you think it was a different, you know, there were external factors that were out of his control that influenced Winnipeg's fate. Maybe he gets another chance. What say you can. Well, I, I'm not sure it's I, I'm not sure it's not a moot point because I don't think Winnipeg is thinking this way. I think they they like what Paul Maurice brings to them. I think the players like playing for him. I don't think that I don't get the sense in Winnipeg that there's this Paul Maurice fatigue. You know what I mean? And I and quite frankly, I think part of that has to do with his personality and the way he relates to people and the way he engages the media and the fan base. You know, so like you're not gonna have guys that. Well, no, I mean, I, I think if 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 somebody in the media there thought that, you know, 
removing Paul Maurice would be a good idea. They would say it. But, you know, I mean, they're all human and they tend to be sort of, you know, guys that would would sort of give him a lot more slack or, or a lot more um, a longer leash than they might give a guy like a Tortorella or someone who's a little more prickly. So I, I think that's still a big part of it. And I'm not sure that 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 doesn't obscure things a little bit. And I, th- I think it kind of does um, because this team, you know, they didn't have any answers in the second round, you know? Um, so do they move on from him? I, I don't, I don't think it would be outrageous for them to do that. Like, I don't think anybody in the hockey world would say, yeah, you did, you know, you did Paul Maurice dirty by, by firing him after this year. Cause I mean, he's had two teams that have had a lot, a lot, a lot of faith in him for a long, long time. And uh, the results, you know, haven't been there. They, ha- they just haven't. So I don't think it would be something where, you know, the hockey world would, would react with disgust and, and, uh, and, and disdain if, if Paul Maurice were like, go. but I, I don't think it's going to happen. I, I think you, I think again, like I said about Bednar, you put them on a pretty short leash next season. If they don't, if they're not back to being, uh, you know, at a legitimate Stanley Cup contending team through the season next year, then I think that's when you look at making a move. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny, May, this conversation for a few years now, and my answer has been the same every year, which is, yes, it, it's time to move on from Paul Maurice. He's He's a great guy, but just look at the results. They're never there. And I, I think that, you know, you have, you have options because you have a lot of talent. I mean, it's not, as we mentioned, it's not a complete roster. You need a little more help on defense, but you've got a lot of great elements there. And this team should be better than they have been. They should have been at least, at least playing for a Stanley cup at, at, at this point, but they haven't been. And I think, you know, you have, Pascal Vincent um, in the AHL, who has, you know, I, I think earned at least a, a look in the NHL at this point. If you keep it internal, then that's a great option there. You've got, you know, guys like Lane Lambert, who have been fantastic, you know, assistant coaches in the NHL who can probably use, uh, you know, a, a step up there to get the chance behind the bench. And then, of course, you can go with, you know, a new voice, a recycled guy, you know, maybe a Rick Tockett, for example, um, you know, just first name that came to mind there just to see you got to shake something up because this there doesn't seem to be enough urgency in Winnipeg and you'll get it from a couple of players you know I I think you'll see the urgency uh, or hear from it you know from like a Blake Wheeler for example but overall it doesn't seem like like you don't get those big Nathan McKinnon competitive rants I think as much um, you know you get you get Mark Shifley blaming the system instead of himself for getting suspended and to me that's not the culture you want if you actually want to be a championship team I think you need a coach that can really hone in on that and say guys like we are well past the time where we should be just kind of floating around in the second round of the playoffs like this is a team that should be going for it right now. We've got the dogs to do it. Let's do it. Something's not right there. And I mean, they've had a lot of different options. They've had a lot of talent go through that team. And I, you got to look at the coach. It's, it's time. It's past time. 
Yeah, I think you make good points there, Ryan. And, and I agree, especially from a culture perspective, you know, and Maurice is a very likable guy, but I think, you know, if there's a downside to his personality and reputation, I think he's pretty protective of his players. And I don't think Maurice is known as a, a really hard guy to play for. So I do wonder if it's time to bring in a hard guy to play for. And maybe you do bring in the guy that really lit a fire under Pierre-Luc Dubois like nobody else, Mr. John Tortorella. That's the guy that's going to take everyone, drag them into the fight and light a fire under a team that I think is running out of years, especially if you look at Wheeler and, you know, you have Hellebuck right in his prime. And if you look at the effect under Maurice or the results under Maurice in recent seasons, the points percentage, 695, then 604, 563, 563. It's trending downward. And the last couple of seasons, two years in a row, the Winnipeg Jets were among the worst defensive teams in the NHL. They're being carried by Connor Hellebuck. Without Connor Hellebuck, they might be not even a playoff team two years in a row. I think they're extremely dependent on him. They had a lot of holes. Some of it you can blame on Kevin Chevaldeoff because he didn't repair that blue line. He went out. He, he didn't go out and do really anything at the trade deadline. He stood pat. So you could lay the blame at Chevaldeoff's feet. You could lay the blame some of it for bad luck. You had. The Shifley and Line A injuries last year in the playoffs, the Shifley suspension, if you want to call that bad luck. So sure, they weren't at full strength at the moment of elimination in either of the past two seasons. But at the same time, I, I just, I agree with you, Ryan. I think it's time you got to light a fire under this group. So maybe you have to bring in someone that just, you know, just lights a match. And I don't know if it would be a good mix with John Tortorella, but, and maybe, you know, get Paul Maurice, send him out to Seattle, get a really media friendly guy. There's already a relationship. He coached Ron Francis, right? in Carolina back in, in the day, there's already a relationship there. So just get him out there and you know, he's media friendly. He's a perfect personality for your new market and then bring torts uh, to, to Winnipeg. Let's do some uh, listener questions now. Um, first one is from Manny Benavides. Manny wants to know why are the analytics and the eye test so different for Seth Jones? Do you think Hamilton or Jones is a better fit for the Philadelphia Flyers? Thanks gents, always a great show. Thank you, Manny. Um, in terms of the analytics versus eye test thing, I think, I think with Seth Jones, it's just because physically he is so gifted. Like he's tall. He's got a long reach. He's a great skater. He shoots the puck hard. He's got so many exciting tools. That's why he was such a hyped prospect in 2013. It's hard to unlearn the idea of him being dominant. I think it's similar with Rasmus Ristolainen. There's still always interest in him, even though his analytics, analytics are always terrible. He's just got that, that sort of tool set that people crave big mobile can play physical game long reach etc etc big shot so i think that's why uh, there's the clashing of the analytics and the eye test because he just he doesn't look like a bad hockey player he's graceful he's just a, a very impressive hockey player in terms of what, the way he looks but the results for whatever reason are just not there in recent seasons they've been pretty bad um in terms of hamilton or jones being a better fit for the flyers I think Hamilton, um, and I think Ken, you outlined it well, I think he's just a little more likely to settle things down uh, in, in front of Carter Hart, just based on the results of recent years. He's been much better defensively. So I would lean Hamilton. Uh, what do you think, Mr. Campbell, about the Seth Jones in the eye test versus analytics? Well, it's interesting because I'm going to go back to the the Shea Weber for um, P.K. Subban trade. I, I think we, we were having a lot of these same discussions, and I, I believed it because I don't – you know, I'm, a, I'm not an analytics guy, but the the analytics people were telling us from all corners and, and very emphatically that this was a terrible trade for the Montreal Canadiens, that this trade was going to not going to age well for Montreal. It was going to be terrible for them. Montreal got ripped off. 
you know, um, and, and Nashville got the better of the trade. And, and it did look like that for the first part of it, but now it's not even close on the other side, right? Like it's not even close. So, um, and you know, I mean, one of the analytics guys in Montreal ended up losing his job over that trade because he was so critical of how they, uh, why they, of, of them getting Shea Weber over, over PK Subban. And, and I think now you look back and it's like, well, I mean, at it's it's at best if you take the entire body of work. It's at best an even trade, and I think it, I think it would lean more towards Montreal winning that trade now. So, um, so I, I look back at that, and so now I look and you go, well, you say say the th- same things about Seth Jones. If you do, you know that's a cautionary tale, <laughs> you know, to me. If you're gonna turn your back on Seth Jones because of bad analytics. I think you have to look back at the example of that and say, you know, is that really what you should be doing? Um, you know, as far as Philadelphia, I, I talked about it. I thought, I think Dougie Hamilton would be one of the best fits for, for the flyers anyways, but, uh, yeah, I think it's, I think it's a cautionary tale for sure. Yeah. And it's interesting, you know, because when we talk about analytics, I think what, what we all tend to talk about are public analytics. And this is something that, you know, Columbus journalist Allison Lucan uh, mentioned on Twitter recently, or somebody mentioned that she had mentioned it, and, and she actually writes for the Hockey News now as well, is that, you know, Seth Jones's public analytics are not great, but, you know, we don't know what team-specific analytics are and how he might have been valued on the Columbus Blue Jackets specifically, for example. And I think that's an important distinction to make here is there's so much information that we don't have as members of you know, the, the media or the general public is, um, you know, really driving down on these stats. And, you know, part of it was Columbus was a bad team this year. Um, and that's going to have an impact on uh, players around them. I, I know there's, you know, I, look, I'm not an analytics expert by any stretch of the imagination, but um, I, I think the value in analytics tends to be more in looking back. Like I was kind of joking to myself the other day that, you know, the analytics community, they're better coroners than they are doctors. Mm-hmm. Um, and <laughs> no, I think that's, that's something one. important, you know, and, and Ken, you made a really good point about, you know, the Subban Weber trade where in the short term, you know, Subban took Nashville to a Stanley Cup final. And that's something Weber has not been able to do in Montreal. Um, but, you know, further down, you know, yet, uh, but I mean, really, um, yeah. Amazing how game one went when Vegas had all of their healthy players and, uh, you know, actually use their skill to accomplish something versus Montreal's other opponents in the playoffs. Um, but, I, you know, I, I think, you know, Seth Jones is a, a top-end talent, and, you know, this year was a bit more of a struggle for him. Sure, but, I mean, I certainly uh, would love to have him on my team. And, you know, as for the Flyers question, um, you know, we mentioned Hamilton, great fit, but I, I mean, I think Seth Jones would also be a great fit and the kind of guy that could eat up a lot of minutes on that Flyers blue line. So I don't think you could go wrong with either of them. Mm-hmm. And, and good points about that. I like the corner doctor comparison. And it reminds me of something that um, Kyle Dubas told me. It was when he was first hired as an assistant GM. And he said that, you know, hockey analytics are way, way behind baseball. It's going to take 20 years to catch up. And I still think that's the case because in baseball, I think you can, you, you can, if you're a baseball guy like I am, you know, you look at barrel rate and hard hit rate, all these things, they can predict guys breaking out of slumps. Like you see guys hitting the ball hard and he's in a big slump and all of a sudden he goes off because he's hit, if you keep hitting the ball hard, you're going to get results. So I think those are more accurate metrics, whereas hockey, 
we're still, it's still in the early days of figuring this stuff out. We're only about 10 years, maybe a little bit less in terms of analytics being in the mainstream. So they're not the most accurate yet. And that's why we do see these discrepancies between, you know, look at Cody CC, I guess, and Mike Matheson, they kind of had good years in Pittsburgh. And, and I remember it was Dubas, like, to go back to Dubas again, at the end of the season last year, he said that CC was a lot better according to our metrics. That's the team metric thing. So I do think that it's still going to be another 10, 15 years before we have truly accurate hockey analytics that can better sort of predict who, which players are going to be valuable going forward. Uh, next question. So this is a complicated one, but it was a fun one from Chris Pierce. I'm going to try and just reword it. Um, to try and make it understandable. What he wants us to do <laughs> is pick a, pick a year with the Stanley Cup champion, and he wants us to pick a player who used to play for that team but wasn't on that team that year and was still playing in the league and place that player on that team. So the example he gave was he wished he could take Paul Correa and place him on the Anaheim Ducks in 2007 because Korea never got to win, get, got to game seven in 2003. Then he moves on, ends up with Nashville, St. Louis, and so on. So he wants us to find our version of that. So I'm going to say 2011 Boston Bruins. I'll take Joe Thornton, who many consider the best player without a cup, or he's still very much in that discussion with Marcel Dion, Jerome Gimla, and so on. Brad Park. No, Brad Park. Yeah, Brad Park didn't win a cup, did he? Yeah. Did not. So I'll place Joe Thornton on the 2011 Boston Bruins. That's my pick. What do you think, Ken? I'm going to put Mike Gartner on the 1994 New York Rangers. Um, you know, I mean, Gartner was a guy who scored a ton, you know, was a star in the league, never, ever got it done in the playoffs and was basically dealt at the trade deadline for Glenn Anderson and, and, you know, missed out on his chance to win a cup. I, I got to think that the Rangers, even if they had had Mike Gartner instead of Glenn Anderson still would have won the cup in 1994 and he would have been a part of it. And his hall of fame career would not have had that. Yeah, but you never won a cup <laughs> sort of thing. So uh, to me, you know, and, and he's a good guy. He's a, Mike Gartner's a good guy, a good person. He had a great career and it's got this, he's got this, just this massive chasm in his, in his, in his resume that he never won a Stanley cup. And it would have been nice to see him win one. And he, he could have won one with the 1994 New York Rangers. Mm. I'm going to go with uh, Marion Hosa, putting him on the 2009 Pittsburgh Penguins. I know he won a cup with Chicago soon after, but the idea of losing to Detroit while playing for Pittsburgh and then losing to Pittsburgh <laughs> yeah. while being on Detroit, I still remember him after they lost. It's like, oh, I feel so horrible for Marion Hosa. <laughs> he's got beat both times oh, and, uh, he's, and he's a hall of famer. I mean, he's such a good player. Um, I, if, if we could have reversed that, if he had just, you know, stayed on <laughs> Pittsburgh for one more year and helped them beat Detroit, I think that would have been a great, uh, you know, that would have been a great arc for him, even though ultimately he would win uh, in Chicago. I, I would, I would get in my time machine and, and tell him, do not make that move. Stick with, stick with the Penguins for one more year. I love those picks. And it's funny, the 94 Rangers, that was the year that Neil Smith was an absolute wild man. And That's the deadline. First yeah. place team. They were in first place. He traded half the team. I remember <laughs> Glenn Healy telling me, because I did an oral history of that season, he was saying that, like the Rangers were getting on the bus and they were like, looking around. They're like, where the hell is everybody? Like, who are these guys coming in? We're in first place. Like half the team is gone. And everyone was like, what is going on? It was absolutely bananas. Uh, okay, we'll go another question here from Nick Butts. Nick wants to know, man, I wonder if people called Nick Seymour. They, I'm sure they did. Sorry, Nick. You probably got Seymour all the time from Simpsons fans back in the day. 
so Nick wants to know, how should the NHL handle the regular season versus playoff salary cap discrepancy? I bet you'll see teams starting to use the Tampa model moving forward. I like the way you've worded this question, Nick, because it's not like just specific to Tampa Bay and complaining about Tampa Bay. It's more like, what about just addressing this issue in general? And is it going to be a problem? Uh, so looking at the CBA, it, it was extended, it expires in 2025-26. So I think it's not that likely to change until the next CBA, especially because in the years leading up to it, we're still in a flat cap world right now. So I think there's more understanding a among the, just the NHL in general, but also just among teams that they kind of need this LTIR to sort of escape the 81 and a half million problem. And this year we saw half the teams in the league going over. So I think there's going to be more and more of this kind of uh, circumvention and getting your team optimized for the playoffs. So I don't think it's going anywhere personally. It's just my, my opinion. I'm not saying that I've been told that by anyone. It's just my uh, prediction. What do you think, Ryan? Well, my solution to this, and I, and I would say I agree, Matt, we're probably not going to see any change to it uh, because it would just take a lot of paperwork at this point. Um, my solution would be that the salary cap still counts for the first round of the playoffs. Mm. That way you have teams that would actually have to make decisions and um, you know, really get their ducks in a row and plan things out. Um, you know, obviously Nikita Kucherov is the case that everybody's talking about. So for Tampa Bay, they would have had to say to themselves, okay, well, you know, we're going to have to deal somebody at the deadline because we know Kucherov is coming back right before the end of the, you know, right before the the playoffs begin. So we got to have our ducks in a row, you know, that way, I mean, there's, you know, teams playing these things, you, you will have surprises, but I think that's a fair way where everybody's prepared and the rule is, you know, sort of crystal clear. It's like salary cap still counts for the first round. If you make it past the first round and you are still keeping somebody on LTIR, well, good for you. You took a major risk uh, because anything can happen in a week. You know, ask Tampa Bay when they lost to Columbus that year. Um, so I think that would be a fair way. <clears throat> nice. Well, I have a couple of fixes. Number one, abolish the salary cap because salary caps are stupid and pointless and they don't accomplish anything and they cause more problems than they solve. Done. Done. Salary cap's gone. Goodbye, salary cap. That's not going to happen. Okay, so you're a league and you say we want to have cost certainty and we want to limit spending, um, but we're going to turn around and create a bunch of legal circumventions to this thing that allow the big market teams to spend money, which is kind of counterproductive to the whole concept of a salary cap which is also stupid to me uh, to me it's it's very it's a very easy fix and and it probably won't happen it's just you from day one of the season to day whatever of the season when the stanley cup's finished you have to be cap compliant simple i i cannot i cannot for the life of me understand how you have to be salary cap compliant for a nothing game against arizona in the middle of january but you don't have to be cap compliant for game seven of the Stanley cup final. That's ridiculous. That's crazy. That's nuts. (laughs) I'm sorry. Just no, you have to be, as long as you are playing hockey, as long as you are playing hockey, you have to be cap compliant period. I, yeah, I think you make a good point. I feel like there's a culture and going back to, to the Rask discussion, like there's a culture today of like, when you have a guy on LTIR, you're kind of like, Damn, that's a shame <laughs> for your WandaVision fans. It's the Catherine Hahn wink meme because it's like you kind of almost are like, oh, 
I wouldn't mind if this guy goes on LTIR. We can sign an extra guy. We can probably make get by without him, and then uh, later we'll bring him back. So it all there's almost motivation. It's almost like if a guy's hurt, the team's like, uh, yeah, you should have the surgery. Yeah, and you go right ahead. Yes, <laughs> yeah, go ahead, go do it, do it. Yeah, do you're it. definitely gonna miss ten games or more. Yeah, exactly. So. Yeah. Okay, we'll do one more question before rapid fire. This is the postmodern Prometheus. Prometheus, the prequel to, to Alien, really disappointing. The trailer was awesome. The movie disappointed me. I don't know if that's what his, his, his name is based on. But so postmodern Prometheus wants to know, Joe Thornton, player coach? I like the idea of keeping his attitude and experience in the dressing room through the regular season as an assistant, keeping his fitness up with regular practice, and then sign him to a base deal before the playoff deadline. I love the keeping his fitness up. It sounds like a throwback to like the forties. Joe Thornton, he's still doing many pull-ups and chin-ups, keeping his fitness up to be ready for the big game. Like, you know, but uh, <laughs> the problem with this, so Joe Thornton player coach, it's an adorable idea, but I think he, I think that should have been Joe Thornton like two years ago. I don't think he can fulfill the player part of player coaching mm -hmm. as we saw in the playoffs. I think he's done. I don't think he's got anything left in the tank. I would argue he actually became a detriment to the Leafs because there's an invisible pressure to play him in high leverage situations in the lineup. He probably should not have been in the lineup if we're really being honest with ourselves. Absolutely. And I just don't think he has it left. So I think just make him assistant coach, just scratch the player from player coach, Joe Thornton coach. That's my answer. Ryan. I agree. Do the Steve Ott in St. Louis, you know, just, you got a guy that can connect with the players. They have been his peers, uh, you know, prior to that. So he has that great connection and, and communication, put him behind the bench. You still reap all those leadership benefits, uh, but then you don't have to have Steve Ott on the ice. No Doug offense, Harvey, Steve Ott. Doug Harvey, Dickie Moore, Joe Thornton. Like, come on guys. <laughs> there hasn't been a player coach in the NHL since forever right like i mean and there's a reason for that there's a reason why they don't have that it's it's too hard to be an assistant coach and a player at the same time like you can't do it the assistant coach now has so much more responsibility and you know things that have to be done he has to pro provide a buffer between the player and the head coach he's got to do video he's got to you know he's got to be the heavy sometimes he's got to run meetings he's you can't do that. You can't do that and be a player as well. Uh, so I, I think there's a reason why there are player coaches in the NHL. And I, I don't think, uh, I don't think that, that Joe Thornton that I, yeah, I don't think that'd be a very good idea. And Steven says it's really popular in the British league. Well, it's probably like a cost saving option. I'm sure. Yeah. I think player coach, here's my pitch. It's a 20 year old player coach. He's still got a lot of spring in his step. <laughs> the team. Coming this November to Disney Plus. It's a it's a show. Oh. Player coach from the writers of Rookie of the Year or something. Zach Efron is and he's and he's, and he's a monkey. Monkey, monkey Oh, I think we've got nice. a show right here. Yeah, I like it. I like it. Coach Bananas. <laughs> yeah, that's great. All right. Um, okay, we're gonna do the rapid fire game now. I uh, hope you guys are ready here. I like my categories, so I'm just gonna toot my own horn. Uh, I'm going to arbitrarily pick the first question answer. Uh, I'm going to say Ryan, uh, because there's one yeah. question that could stump Ken, so I want to give him more time. On this. <laughs> Ryan, All right. you answer first. Uh, first question, you are an NHL goalie. Describe your mask paint design. Yeah, I like this one. I would go with like a bunch of like death metal lettering where you can't really read what it says, uh, that's what makes a good death metal logo. 
so I think I would go with a yeah. It, it would almost look like Jerry Cheever's mask, uh, but it would instead of stitches, it would just be a bunch of like gibberish lettering and jagged. I'd go with uh, I'd go with to speaking of Jerry Cheevers, I'd go with like the iconic goalies in history. Like I'd have the Ken Dryden on the on the you know on the on the stick. I'd have the Cheevers mask. I'd have uh, Dominic Hasek making some ridiculous save. I'd have you know Johnny Bauer without a helmet or without a you know without a mask. I'd have I'd have the picture of of Jacques Plante holding the mask with all the blood on his sweater and everything like that. That's what I would go with. That would be cool. That's nice. pretty sweet. Do the lyrics on your on your mask, Ryan, do they say? Well, the, the first lyrics? was a drum that you did there, so it wouldn't be it wouldn't be lyrics now, would it? Yeah, that's fair. It enough. wouldn't. Uh, I think you guys you guys have much better masks. Than, mine 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 sucks. Mine <laughs> sucks. It's your question. You had all no, you had the whole time to think about it. Like it's my childhood dog, so like it'd be like a dog, kind of like the Brian Hayward shark head or the Cujo. Okay, it's but then on the side, it's it's Al Pacino and Robert De Niro and Heat. My favorite movie <laughs> makes no sense, no sense at all. I gotta Duh. say though, the best the best two goalie masks have already been done and can't be beaten. Steve Valiquette's Spider Man mask and Carter Hart's Carnage mask. Yeah, there you go. That's very good. Um, okay, next question, Ryan. Name the year of the best Saturday Night Live cast. I'm gonna go with. Uh, this, I guess this would have been like early nineties. I don't know the specific year, but the combination of like Mike Myers, Dana Carvey, Phil Hartman, Jan hooks. Uh, and then you had like, I don't know if this was specifically the same time, but like the young guns were like Chris Rock, Chris Farley, Adam Sandler, David Spade. Uh, that, that nexus right there, I think was the strongest. Yeah, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go with the with the troupe that that pioneered the whole thing and and started everything and and created the template that you know that that this show became, and that's you know the early to mid '70s group of you know John Belushi, Dan Aykroyd, Chevy Chase, you know Lorraine Newman, Gilda Radner, Jane Curtin. Um, you know they they were the groundbreakers, like you know a Bassomatic with Dan Aykroyd and. Oh, Bassomatic and uh and and you know doing all that stuff and julia julia childs and and weekend update was was you know it was originally uh dan Aykroyd or no yeah it was it was jane Curtin and dan Aykroyd that that were the original sort of uh i believe the original weekend update Mm -hmm. and i mean that was you know i mean i'm old yeah okay okay steven make the old joke go ahead go ahead (laughs) just dinosaurs okay thanks and so you know, I mean, for me, you know, I, I started watching that in high school and it was, it was like, it was so weird because at that time TV was like, you didn't do that stuff on TV, you know, like, and, 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 and we had just gotten K I lived in Sudbury. We'd just gotten cable TV and this show was on late Saturday nights and they were, they were being risque and talking about sex and all this other stuff. And it was just so cool that they were actually doing this stuff on TV. Yeah. Those are great picks. Those would be my top two cat or top three casts. Dan Aykroyd has my favorite SNL character ever, which is Erwin Ir- Mainway, the toy sa- salesman. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, do it, you know. Yeah. The, the, the full name of the <laughs> toy is Johnny Yeah, it's a good. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, so I love that character. I'll say maybe it's always based on your formative years, so it kind of reflects the age gap between each of us. So mine is the mid-90s. So it would be the it would be like 96, which is Will Ferrell, Molly Shannon, Sherry O'Terry. 
Daryl Hammond, Anna Gasteyer, Chris Kattan, Tim Meadows, Norm McDonald. So it would be the group just before, like you eventually you had like Tina Fey, Amy Poehler, them rolling in Jimmy Fallon. Uh, but just before that group, I think was the peak for me. Uh, next question. Ryan, give me a big name player that nobody's talking about who could get traded this offseason. Oh, wow. Ooh, that's a good one. Um, a big name player that nobody's talking about. Well, how about how about Zach Wierenski? You know, we're talking about change in Columbus and, uh, you know, I mean, he's, he's going to need a new contract. He's still an RFA, but I wonder if, you know, Columbus just has to go full on blowout rebuild. And, and that includes Wierenski. Still thinking, still thinking you go ahead and then I'll and come back to me, Matt. I'll say Brock Besser. Just uh, Vancouver's looking for a shakeup, and they can use him to get something else that they need more, maybe on defense or or center, whatever it is that they need. I'll say Brock Besser. Okay, mm -hmm. so now I still got to come up with somebody, right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Let's see. Panic uh, uh, and just say hey, Connor McDavid. <laughs> yeah, right. Yes, yeah. But I, I mean, we can't say like Mitch Marner, right? Because people are talking about him, right? Well, not oh, real oh. people. I mean, okay. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, not real people. You can say okay. Mitch Marner. Okay, one of the big four in, in Toronto, okay. I guess. I'll okay. accept it since it's, since it's okay. technically rapid fire. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, you can only dress in the style of one decade for the rest of your life. What decade do you choose? Oh, that's a fun one. Um, yeah, I would probably go 90s because it was fairly laid back and I love – uh, you know, like thrift store clothing. So I would, I would just go with the nineties. I would go with like the forties or fifties. Cause everybody dressed up then. Like if you took a flight, you, you got all dressed up and the suits right. were nice and tailored and they had nice hats and everything like that. You know, either that or the, the eighties, because I still have a lot of poll uh, collars that need to be popped. You're so old, <laughs> Ken. You're so old. Shut up, Steven. Who asked you? <laughs> My answer is lame. I'm just going to say the current decade. So I think the 90s, early 2000s, everything was too baggy. The right. about ten, five, 10 years ago, everything was too tight. I think right now, everyone's just got normal clothes that fit properly. We're in a happy medium. I don't want things. I feel like things are trending back toward too baggy again. I'm like, just keep it where it is. Everything kind of fits, except for this shirt that I'm wearing right now. <laughs> uh, next question. I want you to award the Con Smythe of Con Smythes. So pick one Con Smythe winner of all time among all the Con Smythe winners as the super Con Smythe winner. Right. Ah. Patrick Waugh in uh, 93, because Montreal is nowhere without him, and he basically won it all by himself. Okay. Um, I got to go with Wayne Gretzky. <laughs> I mean, you know, the driving force behind, behind four Stanley Cups. Um, but... You never know. I mean, maybe there's a guy with the Canadians, I'm thinking, in the 50s and 60s. Eh, Jacques Plante, maybe. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Nice. I'm going to say 96, Joe Sackick. 18 goals in 22 games, and they won 16 games. He had six game winners of the 16 games. Pretty wild. Nice. Uh, okay, Ken, the last question. This is why I have you answering, <laughs> answering second. You are ready to attend Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry. I read all the books, boys. I've read all Ooh, the books. Boom. I've read, all, the movies. I've read okay, them all. Yeah. Okay, let's go. I read them to my kids. Excellent. Even I okay. have. So which house are you placed in? Gryffindor, Slytherin, Hufflepuff, 
or Ravenclaw? Ryan's first. I mean, if I'm going to be honest, probably Slytherin. Uh, I feel like, uh, you know, I can, I can, I can do what needs to be done to, uh, to win. So yeah, I'm going to say Slytherin. Yeah. I I'd probably go Slytherin too, just cause I'm a prick. You know, that's it. <laughs> uh, I'm going to say Ravenclaw because I was looking up their, their codes. It says intelligence, knowledge, curiosity, creativity, and wit. So I'm about, you know, like just, I like to look up facts, stats, and I like to make jokes. Nobody remembers people from Ravenclaw. No. Nobody remembers. I was disappointed. That that, I was like, but this, this fits my personality the most. So I'm going to have to do Ravenclaw. <laughs> I was pretty disappointed. And Ken, I apologize for underestimating your Harry Potter knowledge. I'll read them all. I got yeah. dumped on and that'll end this podcast. It was fun. Thanks guys. We'll be back next week with another episode for y'all. Thank you for listening to the hockey news podcast. Make sure to check out THN.com slash subscribe to get issues of the hockey news magazine delivered right to your mailbox.